Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Vents. This is Fed Weekly. A collaboration between Vice and Brent 2020, London Borough of Culture. Get cracking. Supreme. Nuruddin. Vent Weekly. Death is one of the only things definite in our lives. But it's something that a lot of people find hard to talk about and especially hard to process. How can we get better at talking about death? Today we're joined by podcasters Melina Prone and Izzy Lee Poulton to talk about conversations around death, culture and creativity. Could you introduce yourselves for us? Hi, I'm Izzy and I'm the presenter and producer of When Someone Great Is Gone. When Someone Great Is Gone is a podcast about the relationship between grief and creative expression. And I made this podcast in the memory of my mum, Kate, who I lost to cancer when I was around four years old. I'm Melina, a journalist and multi-platform content maker. I am the co-host of Fresh to Death, which uh, is a podcast that explores the stigma and taboos of conversations around death in the South Asian community. Amazing. Those both sound like amazing projects that you're doing. So firstly, we'll go to you, Melina. So you produced and co-hosted a podcast called Deep Down and Desi. So could you just speak about that and how it came about and what you found through making it? Yeah, so the podcast is actually called Fresh to Death, but it's part of the Deep Down and Desi season that the BBC Asian Network commissioned, um, where they were really just looking for stories and um, creatives to kind of come to them with a fresh approach to how we perceive the duality of being British and Asian, which I obviously am. And what was interesting about that project is the commission opportunity landed on um, my desk and my exec producer, Faraz Osman, who uh, co-produced the series with us. And we were just literally chopping it up one day. He'd recently lost his father-in-law. I had lost my dad seven years prior. We were just looking at, at... some of the stories that we'd like to tell and it came across like it came around really organically because he was actually asking me about my dating life he was like so when are you gonna get married I'm like why is that always the go-to question in our culture Mm. and uh I mean he said it jokingly because we're definitely on the same vibe when it comes to um traditions and stereotypes but I did say isn't it funny that we have so much narrative and dialogue around births and marriages but not much around death, like those three poignant, pivotal moments in life where really, you know, your identity, your culture, your religion, your spirituality, uh, all kind of come into play, but we don't really explore it in the same way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was from there, really, the idea was born. And um, in doing that research, and and what I should say is I've been sort of touched by death a lot in my life. I I first lost my, my younger brother when I was 16 and then my dad when I was in my 20s and my grandfather when I was in my 30s. And it was just like, I'd gone through it. And I was like, actually, I've forged a career out of about, you know, about making content to help people understand 
how to have more accessible conversations. So why not this? And this was by far the most personal project. Yeah. Like to host it as well as produce it. It was, you know, it was a lot. And as we started to unpack it and research it, mm. um, we came across Simon Thompson's story. So Simon Thompson was my co-host. Simon Thompson was living with terminal four cancer at the time oh. and had a blog called Curry and Cancer. And I came across her story and I was like, oh, I have to interview her for this. But then I realised, I think Faraz and I both realised very quickly, she she was going through this experience of this anticipatory grief. Mm -hmm. Whereas I was, you know, the person that was going to essentially leave her family and friends behind, whereas I'd sort of been the person left behind. Mm. And all of a sudden it was, we started to exchange our experiences of how we perceive grief and loss and death. And it just made sense for us both to go on that journey together. And and I will talk about Simon quite a lot during this recording. And, and what I will say is we lost Simon a, a month ago now. So we produced, yeah, rest in peace. I mean, she has now made her journey to, to whatever's next. But I think doing this um, project with her, it took us a good year to make. We put it out at the beginning of the year, really allowed us both to open up about conversations that neither of us would have ever have had anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So... Um, it's been a massive, informative, I think, and transformative experience for me. And, and I hope that for the people that get to listen to it, they also take a lot from it. I resonate with you because everyone does experience a form of death. If you live a life where you don't experience the death of a family member or a friend, or then you can consider yourself very, very lucky because you haven't been through that period of grief and loss and um like actually feeling like something has been torn apart from you and like you've been attached to something for so long and you never would have imagined how life would be without the person there and suddenly they're taken away from you but back to Izzy does this resonate with you and how grievances viewed yeah I mean I think what Melina was saying about how transformative grief is but also what resonates with me from that is that grief is so universal, as what Melina was saying. Um, you know, the actual only thing we're certain of in life is that we will die one day. Mm -hmm. But I think the the thing with grief is that it's not really just one emotion either. It's a multitude of emotions. I like to think of it as an umbrella term of emotions, actually. And for me, as a young child losing my mum, mm -hmm. I was actually born into quite a different family situation where I had two mums. So I come from a same sex parent background. Mm -hmm. So I lost one of my mums and my other mum is still alive today. And for me, it was growing up with grief that was the real life-changing experience because okay. actually I had those four years with my wonderful mother, but then the rest of my life has kind of been shadowed a little bit by the fact that yeah. she hasn't been around that time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think for me speaking to lots of people who have gone through grief on the podcast mm -hmm. and especially because of this idea of my podcast being around creativity and grief and how we actually express grief creatively mm -hmm. I think it's just shown that much like creativity grief is just not prescriptive everyone feels it in a different way everyone's situation is so unique but the one thing that you have in common when you lose someone, you almost become part of this grief club. Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of understanding between people that have lost someone, mm -hmm. no matter what period of time that is in their life. And it's almost like a non-verbal understanding. It's just this emotional understanding that something terrible has happened to you and your life hasn't quite been the same since. Yeah. When you go through grief, it almost feels like you can navigate other issues of loss in your life 
a lot better in some senses. So it prepares you for grievances of heartbreak. It prepares you for grievances of moving house or losing a job or a change in a friendship. And I think almost if you've been through something as devastating as losing someone, you're almost more prepared for certain situations in the future. And you're more empathetic to other people's situations too, in a sense. It's like a blessing from a curse. And it's a really weird emotional space to be navigating, I think, in, in your life. Grief in itself is not black and white and everybody goes through it differently. As someone who hasn't experienced death with a close family member, because I've never had those or had to have those open conversations about death, it's more of the like unknown. I haven't really spoken about with anyone, so I don't know what to think. I think fear takes over and then you get more scared. When in my culture, I don't know if it's the same for you, but when someone dies, a lot of things in our ceremonies is mainly done by men. So the men have to do everything. The men, they have to shave their hair. They do all the rituals. They have to um, burn the body because we cremate the body. So they have to burn the body. And I remember once um, another family member, her mom died and they she doesn't have a son so her mom doesn't have a son so she only has daughters and the daughters were shamed for doing everything and I thought that was so silly that that's their mom of course they want to do all the prayers of course they want to do all the rituals whereas my grandparents understood why people thought they were being silly so I just feel like um sometimes I might be torn between maybe like being British Nepalese because I want to do it the Nepalese way. I have a brother, so I wouldn't mind him like doing that. But at the same time, I would want to do something for my parents because the one thing that women do, we have to fast for 13 days, but that's the only thing we have to do. So I just feel like I would want to do more for the funeral and more of the process. So sometimes definitely culture could take more like can take over when it's really something raw like it's death it's to me culture goes out the window when it's about death like that's my mom dying and that's it like I don't can't think about anything else but that is that is definitely an experience that I had and I reflect on it a lot in the podcast a lot of the gender roles in rituals uh, that come from certain cultures still exist and I yeah. think obviously I'm part of a very liberal family I'm able to speak my truth. I'm very happy to talk to, you know, I'm, I'm in my 30s now, but at the time there were a lot, I had a lot of frustrations. I didn't understand why we were doing things. Why, you know, my dad, when we were in the temple um, during the service for my brother was told by his uncle, Rona, which means don't cry. I'm like, how are you going to tell my dad not to cry at his own son's funeral? And I was so angry and I just looked at <laughs> and I was 16 at the time and, you know, probably shouldn't have been as feisty as I was. But I was like, are you kidding me? Let him cry if he wants to cry. And I think a lot of the rage and the anger was just like, this is mad. Mm -hmm. To the point that we took my brother's ashes to India. And that mm -hmm. was a decision that was made by the elders in the family. I, I'd never been to India. Neither had my brother. They weren't ever doing it to be malicious or difficult. It's just that, again... They have a code of conduct. That's the way it's always been for them. Mm. So what we need to do is understand how to empower ourselves to have a voice, especially at a time where you're, you're inflicted by so much trauma, because if you don't do it, then you will be unpacking that for the rest of your life. 
Trust me, I know. And so what what we need to try and do is just understand how to have the language to navigate some of these conversations with a bit more dignity, a little bit more independence. And as we do with everything else, you know, a second and third and now fourth generation born British, Asian, Caribbean, whatever it is, it's like you are navigating the duality of two cultures and it's about how do you meet in the middle, especially when it's something as, as important as the beginning of, of, of the grief process. Um, and I really believe that. And that was really what we set out to do. It was, it was enabling people to kind of just hear us have these conversations, share these experiences and a lot of the feedback that we got. Yeah, it was so powerful because it was Young, a young woman I remember messaged me on Instagram and was like, thank you so much. My dad's in a coma and me and my mom were really worried about how we were going to have certain conversations with the rest of the family. But now we feel like we know where to start. And that was just like, okay, cool. If it's just one person that now feels like they're a bit more empowered, like you just said, Sabrina, you, you feel like you would want to do things a certain way or say things a certain way. Um, and the truth is there is no right or wrong way to do that when you're navigating identity, especially now, but just having confidence that you've thought about it, like anything, a little bit more than maybe you might have done before means that you're kind of all ready to have that conversation. What stood out for me was when you spoke about navigating duality um, between two cultures, because that's something that's so real for many um, or second generation. Well, my generation, me, Sabrina, you know what I'm saying? We're born bred here but we've got a culture that is out of Britain do you know what I'm saying and we have to kind of find in terms of death like culture creativity in, in every aspect we have to find the median so I wanted to ask Izzy and Melina did you think that the UK death ritual and how they deal with death is more clinical than other cultures or um, more, shall I say in Melina's case the South Asian culture would you say that is more clinical so I think my experience with grief and death is quite unique as a British person because I came from a same-sex family. So having two mums actually meant that when my mum, Kate, died, there were a lot of societal and kind of bureaucratic issues with her death. And their relationship actually wasn't recognised in the same way as a heterosexual couple's relationship would be. Um, so my co-producer Bridie who um, helped make the series with me we wanted to make the podcast series not just about creativity but also about this kind of personal story so we went through audio tape of my mum Sue who's still alive and a lot of a network of aunties I call them who are actually lesbian socialist women who were part of that women's movement community that my parents are part of and were part of and a lot of the stories around the shock of society at lesbian mother dying was really horrific to look back on and hear and it made me quite ashamed of how you know the the country handled that and their opinions of same-sex relationships when someone has died yeah. um because there was an instance uh, for one example uh, when they were trying to sort out a cardboard coffin for my mum because she wanted to be buried in something was, that was more environmentally friendly and was, you know, quite progressive. And the woman at the counter of the memorial place just refused to acknowledge the fact that a woman was requesting for it and was like, who's this woman to you? Where, where's her husband? Where's her family? Where's all of this? Mm. Um, so a lot of my mum's death traditional is kind of... Traditional mindset. Yeah, there's a traditional mindset to death yeah. in this country that I think is quite 
quite toxic at points. Yeah. And I do think, you know, as a person who came from a same-sex family where pretty much all of my family are women, except for my brother, the women organised everything. Yeah. The women held up the coffin. The women, none of us are blood-related as, as a family, in a sense, because it yeah. is this network of women who were there to support each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was an unusual situation. And it was almost like at that point when my mum died, the state just didn't want to acknowledge that non-heteronormative relationships could exist and right. queer couples could suffer grievances in the same way that heterosexual couples did. Mm. Yeah. But what an incredible legacy to be part of. Like, mm. I'm just listening Honestly. to you talk and I'm thinking, that's incredible that you have your mum there as that kind of beacon to enable you to fully do things the way that you feel they should be done. And yeah, what you're speaking to there is is essentially diversity and inclusion in the death space. Like what what we're sort of, I guess, touching on is the immediate aftermath of when someone dies. And often when you when that happens, you don't realise, but you kind of go into fight or flight and it's just project management because there are arrangements to be made. Yeah. There are people to tell. There are, um, you know, a lot of politics sometimes involved, which is whether it's because of your culture or, or your gender or your sexuality that you have to sort of navigate and work out. And I remember when I spoke to Mohammed, he was like, sometimes, you know, when people come for the burial, because uh, Muslim burial ceremonies have to happen very quickly. So same within Ju- Judaism, like within 24 hours, Geneza. you know, you may have people come just like at a wedding that don't all get along, sit them at different tables. And I was like, wow, like I didn't even think of, of that because I was actually quite unaware of all that sort of drama when it's an immediate family loss. I dare anyone to bring that to me. Yeah. But I do think <laughs> I do think it happens. And he was sort of saying that, you know, our role as mediators in this moment as well. And I thought, actually, I really wanted to ask him, well, what should the role of religion then be in these moments? Not to tell you how you should do things, exactly. but really how to make it easier, softer, kinder to the family and the bereaved. Mm. It's it's so important to think about these things because this is a moment this is a pain that's going to happen it's inevitable and Mm -hmm. you know really listening to izzy and you know the process that she went through i'm very sure she'll do things differently and with more awareness as will i but we had to kind of learn the hard way burrow's furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's a great link between grief and creativity. I would point to some of the artists we, we know so well who produce songs from heartbreak, from losses of people which are close to them. These were probably written from a place of grief and it's inspired creativity. So there is definitely a link between the two. Moments of grief, I find myself thinking, what could have been and what could I have done differently? It's that natural instinct which actually sparks creativity to motivate me to do things differently moving forward. 
from an early age, as Melina touched upon, we didn't really have the resources about grief in the same sense that uh, this generation has nowadays. There wasn't such an accessibility about it. So for me, my way of expressing myself was through creativity. So I would write poetry, I would sing, I would play piano, I would write a diary, just so I could process this idea of growing up with grief. And it made me become such a thoughtful and creative person. And it's something I'm so grateful for and obviously starting the podcast I wanted to open up that conversation as as Melina touched upon about talking about death and grief Mm. but I wanted to make it in an accessible way so people could frame their grief through creativity Mm -hmm. because I think actually as we've discussed grief can be a bit of a taboo subject alongside death and dying whereas if you frame it in a sense where it's talking about another subject such as playing music or creating art or dancing around your grief I think almost you can create express your sentiments of grievance in a way that's not putting yourself so emotionally on the spot sometimes Mm. because we've spoken to amazing musicians and we've spoken to fantastic dancers who have all subconsciously or consciously created art around their grief and what they all have in common is that all of their stories are so unique there is no prescriptive way that you can grieve there is no a systematic way that you should feel loss or express yourself. But the one thing they all have in common is that they use creativity as a means by which to feel grief and to feel like they are speaking about their grievance to the world. And one thing that I've really loved about creating this series is that it's almost been my own meta way of creatively expressing my grief because it's very much a documentary series and my co-producer Bridie and I made it quite like that everything's so creative there are sound effects there's me playing piano there's me talking to people there's whole communities around it it's a piece of artwork that is almost a legacy that I've been kind of building up to my entire life because of creativity so it's been such an emotional and wonderful project and I think that the fact that grief is so universal and that creativity is so universal too it's not just a coincidence these are two very essential parts of the human experience and being a human and actually they're both so existential that I think talking about them together in this frame is so natural for people to do like one of the questions we ask is how do you define creativity and everyone had a different answer and then the other question we asked was how do you define grief and everyone had a different answer both grief and creativity are actually umbrella terms for so many different things so to have this comfortable environment where people can talk about their grief and their loss and acknowledge and empathize that other people are expressing it in different ways just kind of normalizes this conversation around death and grief and actually how we talk about it izzy i do second your views on creativity on music especially channeling a form of healing. I myself play music as well. I haven't been through any huge, huge losses in my life. I've lost my auntie at the age of 10, but it was an auntie that I wasn't really as close to, like lived with and saw every single day. So I did feel that, but I didn't play then. So when I grew older, I realised you do feel these sort of emotions and you feel the image of death or... It, it flows away from you when you play. I don't know if you get what if you if you get the kind of gist I'm giving you, but yeah. you're playing it not away, but you're playing it, and it's just 
Well, you're just playing your emotions. You're playing That's emotions the thing, away, exactly. isn't it? You're inherently being your truest form of yourself by being so expressionate. Exactly. And I think you don't have to be like a famous artist or a famous musician to be able to do that. You could play like one, two notes and feel feel like that's happening do you get it literally it's like Sampha says no one knows me like my mum's piano right I completely think the same thing where I'm living right now Kate's piano is downstairs and when I'm feeling sad or thinking about her I'll go downstairs and I'll take a quiet moment and I'll just reflect creativity in a way that is so expressive and think about my grief through playing music I love that Mm, I love that beautiful it makes me think of like the different ways that people deal with death and there's no one set way. So I like how you used your creativity and there's different forms of ways and even you like normalizing the little parts of creativity like making a new meal or going to a new walk i think people think oh it has to be a big piece of mm. art or yes. a, a big amazing music piece so even just those little things that you could do every day is a form of creativity and i wanted to ask melina like what type of other different ways is there to deal with death that you know of my expression is through visual and audio storytelling and, and i completely aligned with what you were saying about this is kind of the thing that I, and I said this, I was like, this is a passion project, but this is a, a life project. And it ended up being a legacy project for Simon because for me, this was the most creative way that I could have this conversation. And I had the conversation years down the line with people that I couldn't have imagined having those conversations with, but we process it in different ways. Songwriting, storytelling, music, art, film, All of that is constantly telling us creativity is such a beautiful avenue to like connect to this feeling and this emotion and grief is no different. I think my advice to anyone is to expose yourself to grief and the things that you don't want to talk about. That's how you build resilience. I really like would encourage people to, you know, think about this in a slightly different way and and don't get overwhelmed by the prospect of it if it's not touched your life yet. And if you are grieving someone or experiencing loss or going through the motions and the different stages of grief, it's just finding the things or the avenues that help you connect and feel a little bit more human with it. And I mean, like even us having this conversation and facilitating this dialogue is creating a new dialogue around grief and death. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. It's almost like, creativity permeates every single part of our existence and what we touched upon earlier this idea that you know some people say oh I'm a creative person I just you know you can be a creative person but everyone's creative and for something to be so as accessible as creativity when thinking about grief I think that's what makes it so easy to express yourself and your emotions through creativity and like for instance we had one of our guests was Nadia who's a musician and she has been a musician for a few years now she's a wonderful woman and she spoke about how she didn't realize until a couple of years after writing a song that that song was about losing her dad. It was subconsciously an expression of her grief. It's not like she purposely wrote something in response to that. But I think when you're alive and you've lost someone, grief is timeless. You're always thinking about it in some way or another, whether it's conscious or not. So that's the same as expressing that through art. You know, it may not be that she was creating a song in response, in direct response to her dad's death, but it came back several years later and she realized what she was talking about. I think you never get to post grief, I don't think. I think you just understand it more. Understanding how to kind of 
cope with that will set you up for understanding how to navigate bigger losses down the road. I just think society isn't really structured. And that's how if we can impact culture in through more conversation, culture will have to shift, policy will have to shift, society will have to shift to enable us to better cope and manage and have the support and the services around us, whether it's because you're um, young, whether it's because you're disabled, whether it's because you're for, you're marginalised in some way, maybe it's because you're you know more vulnerable in society. You know there are so many people that have to go through grief. I am so fortunate because I have so much family. I had so many friends. We were able to give both my brother and my father and my grandfather the send off that they deserve because money wasn't an issue. Funerals are expensive. The rituals that we have in place currently that are sort of there to help us start to say goodbye. I mean, a lot of us have had to participate in funerals in really different ways. Like Simon's funeral was a virtual experience for me. Imagine we'd spent weeks talking about what her funeral might look like and then I couldn't even be there. I mean, her family did a beautiful service with close friends and family, but if you knew Saima, you knew her to be somebody that would just, so many people, I should say, gravitated to her. You just had to be in awe of her because the way she navigated the last few years of her life and the activism and just the number of lives she touched, I was thinking there are going to be thousands of people at your funeral. And what ended up happening was, you know, it was a small affair but for those of us that wanted to join virtually, we could. And I was just sort of sat in my kitchen watching my screen and, and watching these speeches and this beautiful service and the flowers that they ended up picking, the songs that they ended up playing. But I didn't have the same connection to saying goodbye as I thought I was going to have, right? So I just think understanding grief is not linear. I think it stunted my acceptance of what had happened massively. And I'm still sort of processing it now. And this is probably the first conversation that I've had about Saima. But all I'm saying is, isn't it testament to the fact that because I've had this dialogue, because I've had these conversations, I feel strong enough to be able to continue to have it outside of my emotional self and understand it and perceive it for what it is and not how I'm always feeling about it. And that is just something, a skill that I think we need to try and like master in life. And the fact that Melina and I are both doing these podcasts on grief in different ways shows that we want to help facilitate that conversation and that change. We want people to, we want to open that dialogue because we've been through that experience. I think we're both part of this grief club. Thank you so much, Melina and Izzy, for coming on. Anytime, it was a pleasure. Thank you, guys. So Nuruddin, how did you find that conversation? It was a conversation that I needed to listen to because we're all going to experience death in our lifetimes and it's better having this conversation now than later. I think for me it was just showing that having the conversation about death doesn't have to be scary and you can have like an open conversation and it can be like, it, like it's a process and everybody goes through it. So just having the openness was very nice to have. Thanks for listening to Vent Weekly. I've been Nuruddin. And I've been Sabrina. And thanks a lot to Melina and Izzy for coming on. You can find Fresh to Death and When Someone Great is Gone Now wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by the Vent production team. Jess Lawson, Amelia Gill, Moeed Majid and Arlie Adlington. Vent is a collaboration between Vice and Brent London Borough of Culture 2020.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.